if we went by the principle that those affected by a problem should be in charge of determining the solution, then the majority of the world's peace negotiators, foreign ministers, and diplomats would be women. Gender. It influences our identity, the role we play in our society, and the way that we interact with each other. The crucial role of women in preventing conflict and building peace has been recognized. Yet over the last 30 years, 70% of peace processes did not include any women mediators or women signatories. So peace, much like war, remains entirely dominated by men. Welcome to Season 6 of the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by CSPPS, You Know Why Peace Builders, and GPAC. The Youth Thriffin podcast, the Peace Corner aims to demystify peace building by giving peace builders across the world the opportunity to share their stories. We showcase the ordinary and extraordinary nature of peace building with the belief that everyone can be a peace builder. We just need to make space. This season explores gender dynamics in peace building. So who are the people making peace buildings more equal, inclusive and relevant? How are these pioneers making gender equality the norm? Keep listening to find out. Hello and welcome to all our listeners tuning in to this episode of the Peace Corner podcast. Today, we will be talking about contextualizing and decolonizing peace building and mental health and working within the youth peace and security and the women peace and security nexus, especially in the context of Kashmir. I'm very excited to welcome our wonderful guest, Ofra Mir. As the first and only peace psychologist from Kashmir and South Asia, Ofra has been working at the intersection of psychology, mental health, psychosocial support, education, arts, conflict transformation, and peace building for more than a decade. She works multi-sectorally and at grassroots and management levels in different parts of South Asia, Kashmir, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Pan-India, and also in the USA. Ofra's work is aimed at impacting individuals, communities, and systems online and on ground to cope up with the ramifications of living in conflict zones or situations, facilitate culturally relevant, decolonized approaches of healing, counteract the enforced normalization and dehumanization, create community safe spaces for expression, share relevant resources, all while advocating for justice and building space for positive peace building in the process. She's also the founder of the International Center for Peace Psychology and PEGAM, A Message for Peace. It's really nice to have you here, Ofra. And uh, to kick off this episode, I would love to hear a little more about you and ask you a few questions on the same. Uh, so to start off the conversation, could you please tell me a little bo- more about yourself? Uh, what motivated you to become a peace psychologist? And can you share one of the best moments of your career so far? Hi, Shreya. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really humbled. To respond to your question, I'm a Kashmiri. I was born in Kashmir. I've been raised here. And I I think had all my childhood kind of revolved around, you know, the harsh reality of what it means to be a Kashmiri. So growing up, I think um, I wanted to do something for my community. I hadn't thought about psychology or peace psychology to be specific, but I kind of knew from the very beginning that I wanted to give back to my community because there was just so much pain around me. Uh, Almost every Kashmiri has, you know, experienced trauma, pain, uh, the harsh reality um, 
of being in a conflict zone um but i think what really kind of inspired and transformed my life was being at united world college i happened to be the first kashmiri who got a full scholarship to attend this high school it's a chain of um, high schools around the world now and the first one was started back in the days like i think in the wales and the whole intention was that maybe education could be a way to unite people so the curriculum is ib international baccalaureate but there is also equal focus on volunteerism social service you know critical thinking theory of knowledge and a lot of other things at the same time there's also a, a, it's an international environment so you have students from you know 40 50 countries of the world so you basically live what diversity is you know and you uh, there's a lot of focus on peace building so it's like a practical approach to actually understanding peace building so i was a regular teenager when i happened to go to the one in pune in india but that's where my life changed i think i started thinking about kashmir very seriously what it meant for me especially as a you know as a kashmiri muslim woman people started asking me really serious questions about what i thought about the kashmir conflict so it gave me a lot of that space to think about these things i took psychology for the first time i hadn't really gone there thinking i would do psychology but i think sitting in the first psychology class it just made so much sense to me i could you know makes so much sense of my own pain as a kashmiri so i felt like this could be something that could also you know be useful and helpful to a lot of people back home but at the same time i felt uh, you know i'm talking about 2005 <laughs> psychology wasn't even very well known there's still so much stigma around mental health and mental health fields and psychology fields so i'm talking about a long time ago when people didn't even know too much about psychology or mental health including myself but i could see like you know some people were uh, obviously being in a conflict zone there's just so much trauma and pain at so many levels there were people obviously in mental health fields trying to support people there were also people who were trying to kind of work on peace building but uh, it's a, there's an ongoing you know conflict in kashmir it's like a subtle war that's always happening Uh, but i felt like there was a gap i wanted to create something where um, i could focus more on contextualize support for the community where i come from so somehow peace psychology made sense to me so i started uh, kind of you know exploring it more peace psychology is one of the sub fields in psychology and psychology is a very vast field you have anything from clinical psychology to fashion psychology to organizational psychology to aviation psychology so peace psychology is one of the subfields that is basically a psychological lens to look at uh, the analysis of conflict and peace uh, the attitudes the behaviors how can you promote more peace and mitigate conflict for instance so it made a lot of sense to me because it felt like it was bridging the gap between peace building and psychology it felt like a very multidimensional approach for me to look at humans in their own context but peace psychology is also not a very uh, common field even though it's not a new field it started um, you know i think after the world war, uh, war, world wars happened 
but there's still a lot i think there's not even you know a lot of research done in this field so there was nothing ready made i had to do a lot of work on my own when i wanted when i decided to actually explore it but that is where the basis the basic inspiration i think the basic inspiration was just me being a kashmiri and trying to find what is the most relevant way to support my community and peace psychology happened to be the the way for me at that point as a teenager i felt like you know this was something that could support my community obviously i went abroad i was in the us uk I studied further thankfully had um, a couple of very good professors who supported me throughout and it's been a journey ever since i think i've evolved with it if you had asked me uh, about what i thought about peace psychology a decade ago i think i would have probably given you different uh, responses um i think i've really grown with it and i still have so much to learn and unlearn it it's been 17 years of me being in the field and still studying and learning and unlearning and over a decade of practicing on the ground but i think there's just so much to still learn and unlearn right thank you so much for your answer i think it's uh, really inspirational how um, like your journey is shaped to becoming a peace psychologist and how it made complete sense in the context of kashmir and all the conflict and trauma that you saw and also i've always wanted to visit kashmir it's been on my list forever but growing up in india i've also seen so many narratives being framed around kashmir and i've always felt like the mainstream narratives of kashmir tend to marginalize the voices of people living and actually carrying out really valuable work there and since you're the first peace psychologist in kashmir and also south asia how has that framed in your work and what does that mean to you in your personal experience honestly it's been quite difficult it's firstly been a very lonely journey where i have to uh, where i've had to really understand and you know as i said learn unlearn continuously take courses observe analyze design interventions accordingly that could help people on the ground taking into consideration the cultural practices the traditional spiritual aspects of you know who we are for instance as kashmiris um it's not been easy and then obviously being a woman in this field i've also had to sadly sometimes use the garb of you know a counselor which i am not <laughs> mental health is a very very important aspect of my work in peace psychology but it's not the only thing it is one you know of the many things that i do um uh, but i realized being in a conflict zone you know the word peace can also be very controversial and obviously i think it it comes with some sort of privilege to even talk about peace in a place where there is ongoing conflict so i didn't um, and obviously there are other security and safety reasons and everything you do you know is highlighted gets talked about especially as a woman there is not a lot of um, you don't have a lot of safe space to be out there to express so you have to be very very mindful and careful i think uh, i also want to mention this because i you know i sometimes get messages from young people who want to do this work and um i think i'd be the happiest to support them but i also want them to be mindful you know anything that looks fancy is not that fancy there's a lot that happens in the background for every colorful picture that you probably see on social media there are like hundreds of you know very heartbreaking pictures um moments um, of the people you work with um it's it's not easy i think i firstly i think some people also confuse peace psychology with something that probably 
um discredits everything that's happening and it's you know it's they assume that it's just saying that there is peace i think it's it's actually the opposite peace psychology is just a psychological lens to understand the impact of you know the conflict on people their psyche what's happening what can you then kind of what kind of interventions can you design to support communities in distress and in conflicts um but i think that's 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 a confusing thing that people uh, i guess assume about peace psychology the other thing is you know um my work is really at the intersection of mental health conflict peace arts other things and uh, i've not always been very comfortable talking about the work i do on the ground i most of the times talk only about mental health because there is shrinking civic space around me you, you can hardly talk about a lot of these things without getting into trouble um but i also want to uh, mention that uh, the you know peace and justice go hand in hand you cannot talk about peace without talking about justice and in that if even if i'm talking about mental health for me mental health is political there's an overarching political framework for instance in places like kashmir that affects every aspect of your life it affects what you do who you are your you know everything for instance um mental health used to have this narrative of individuality that it is your problem you know it's because of your own genes or your i don't know family system whatever um i think we have to really really acknowledge and start accepting firstly that mental is political and vice versa so uh, in places like you know conflict zones for instance there is a over there's an overarching framework that really impacts uh, everything from your mental health to you know other aspects of your existence um so i think that is important because we cannot be talking about mental health as a neutral thing i think a lot of people still do that and as as psychologists or as professionals in mental health or psychology it is a responsibility and duty to uh, you know talk about these things because all of this work, my work has always been intersectional so it's i cannot be talking about one thing without uh, you know talking about the other thing um so yeah i think that has always been important to me and as a kashmiri uh, who has also uh gone through a lot of you know what it means to be a kashmiri living in a conflict zone um it has been difficult but i think it has also given me a very nuanced understanding of how i can support at least communities in distress or in conflict zones it has also made me more empathetic but there's also uh, you know it also takes a toll on you it's never really easy it has taken a toll on my health for instance i have a lot of health issues now i started having anxiety for instance since 2019 happened um and i'm still dealing with a lot of those issues so you know we're talking about um conflict zones where you have lack of infrastructure you have lack of resources you have very few professionals working on the ground who are always always burdened like every time i think of taking a break even though i'm not a therapist i'm not a clinical psychologist but i do basic mental health support work uh, on a daily basis i get 5 10 messages from people i get calls from people who are either you know looking for resources or more specialized support um or just want to talk to somebody so 
every time I think of taking a break, you know, there's somebody who needs immediate, urgent attention. So it's very difficult to uh, also have those healthy boundaries professionally in conflict zones. I've given, you know, a lot of my existence to the work I do. It means a lot to me, but I've also started realizing um, it comes at a cost and uh, that cost can be your health. It can be your safety protection and a lot of other things, you know, that um, become normal for you, which are not normal. The abnormal is normal in places like Kashmir. Right. And I completely understand that. And I feel like, people sometimes uh, don't consider how it might impact the mental health of people working in this field, especially in the field of psychology. They assume that they are here to support others, but that your own experience is kind of uh, not taken into consideration. So I really appreciate all the credible work you're doing despite like the situation and the toll that it takes on you. You also mentioned that um, it's increasingly more difficult to work in Kashmir, especially as a woman peace builder. And that's what I was also thinking about and wondering as well. And uh, like Kashmir has always been like framed or characterized as this militarized zone. And it's become like a part tussle between India and Pakistan, for example. And I also wrote my thesis on this where I um, where I kind of came to the conclusion that uh, India's foreign policy has become increasingly more masculine and gendered under uh, the current prime minister and how uh, Kashmir is such a powerful and strong example of this and it's just become an ego battle between um, India and Pakistan, for example. So I just wanted to know how is your experience uh, working as a woman peace builder in this context, especially since the region is used in, in the midst of such a masculine power struggle? Kashmir definitely is one of the most militarized regions, which also happens to be heavily uh, patriarchal. So, you know, (laughs) that's bad news for um, a lot of women out there. And then being in peace building, obviously, you know, is um, I think it has its own pros and cons, mostly cons, because um, firstly, there's so much of gender bias. Like when I came back more than a decade ago, I faced a lot of gender bias being in some of the most so-called woke circles as well of, of you know, men who had been outside, who had been abroad, they'd come back. So it wasn't easy. I think there's a lot of bias in terms of, you know, what a woman can and cannot do. Uh, which is not, which is nothing new. It's nothing uh, uncommon, especially in South Asia or the subcontinent or generally around the world as well. So people like to box me into this whole notion of being a counselor because they feel like a woman is more suited to do the job of a counselor because, you know, women is um, more empathetic and understands emotions better but when it comes to you know running a think tank or uh, doing more of analytical work um, they don't see you more fit for that kind of a job so people still as I said you know <laughs> a lot of people still think I'm a counselor and after a while I just stopped explaining it to people what I was doing because uh, in a way I was like fine you know through this I can do my work whatever I need to do on the ground um, but that uh, makes it really difficult for you because every time you do something you have to start from scratch and to create your own space also as a woman in this in this kind of a space in this kind of a society is anyway very difficult 
so there have been um, you know instances it's been very difficult generally um, to schedule your work for instance i have to really plan it ahead of time i need to know ahead of time when i'll go what time i'll come back and even though for instance i consider myself an independent woman you know i've been out on my own since i was 16 years old i've lived in different parts of the world uh, i'm i also run my own household because my dad passed away but even then as a woman you know you still have so much to worry about and think about on a daily basis there's always a potential risk of harassment on the streets um you know you you name it it's there the militarized gaze it's always there so when you walk on the streets you have you become very mindful and conscious of a lot of these things it really affects your agency as a woman um so yeah i think as a woman peace builder it's never easy um and there are always um, i i feel sad to say this but there are men who are even not just men i think generally there are people who are also ready to kind of copy paste your work without really realizing or understanding the depth of it or the nuances of it and how long it has taken somebody to even come to a point where you know they can say a few things about it so that's also very common in at least my context and it has happened to me as well and in that i think being a woman a lot of people don't even take you seriously you know when i would uh, initially do workshops for instance a lot of my work here has been through experiential workshops until they would actually see the work i am doing a lot of men would you know probably think i'm just there talking about mental health uh, which was important which was a part of what i was doing but uh, i think after they would see it they would take me more seriously but he yeah, has a woman as i was saying before as well everything you do the way you put your hair what you wear everything is talked about especially in a patriarchal society like ours um which is also very militarized i completely understand as to how gender bias is so inherent and so deeply patriarchal especially in the context of south asia that even like walking down the street feels vulnerable and um yeah it's so ingrained in society that it's just um, a threat uh, to everything to add um, i feel peace building in general is a very male dominated field and it remains so and not just in south asia i think you know around the world again i think it's it's a lot to do with the gender bias that comes with what a woman can and cannot do um because obviously women has i think we end up doing a lot more as women especially if you're peace builder as well now in that context you have certain chores and responsibilities at home that you are you know catering to and taking care of and in the external world you are also then doing some other things that are equally important i think you are always doing a lot more but getting very very less acknowledgement for that so yeah on top of that i think there's always been very less acknowledgement of what's being done uh, by the community or the society around me but also at a very international level you know uh, for instance kashmir conflict still doesn't get recognized as a conflict uh, internationally a lot of people still talk about it as a disturbed zone or disturbed area so when you then talk about your work as a peace builder you know you have to really start from scratch it's really exhausting um and as a woman peace builder you don't always get that space or that network or those resources that you actually need or the support system at large
Yeah, I completely understand. And I think I agree with the fact that uh, peace building is such a male-dominated sphere still. And uh, there are so many things that you need to consider in that respect. And also gender biases are so inherent, uh, especially in the South Asian context. And in that context, I would also like to ask you that I know that you work uh, very closely with Youth Peace and Security and the Women, Peace and Security Nexus, so the YPS, WPS Nexus. And I would really like to know and would be interested uh, in knowing how, how does gender, for example, or those gender biases inform your work in that sphere? And how do you work with the Youth Peace and Security and Women, Peace and Security Nexus? First things first, I'm not a gender expert. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's it's something that's absolutely important for anybody and everybody. Uh, and somebody like me is still trying to learn more about it and studying more about it. But as I said, you know, I think it's almost impossible to look at peace building um, without actually considering the gender lens. Um, it's just like how I've been actually advocating for well-being oriented and mental health oriented approach towards peace building, which is still very, um, you know, uncommon. I think there's now some acknowledgement and some awareness about its importance, but I think it's still something that people, most of the policymakers also don't even really talk about or don't think it's important. So from that lens, you know, gender is important and it's only going to be more important and we need to be very sure of how we're talking about it, what are the kind of initiatives or interventions we are, you know, taking care of, which are gender responsive, gender sensitive, gender inclusive. So for instance, at my Center for Peace Psychology, it, as I said, you know, we, um, we're not gender experts, I don't work on gender, um, but we also always try to make sure that we're not doing things that are gender blind you know, uh, at least catering to that. Or for instance, this uh, in counseling also, there, there is a huge need for queer affirmative and gender sexuality counseling, for instance, but it's also something very new. And obviously um, in a place, for a place like Kashmir, it also feels like a very privileged thing to say, because we anyway have a lot of other basic uh, human rights violations and issues to deal with. Um, but I think, you know, moving um, on, it these things will become more and more important because you cannot be talking about peace and justice without talking about how a lot of these uh, things affect, uh, you know, transgender community, for instance, or other people of other genders, um, the marginalized um, you know, communities or the most vulnerable that includes women and children and people from other genders and groups. In my uh, experience, a lot of my work has been with women and youth. So that's that those are the communities or the groups of people that I work most closely with. Um, and when I started working with them, it wasn't with the intention of, you know, uh, working on YPS or WPS agenda at um, like someday. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, but I think in the process, it, it, it's also become more, more and more important for me because I now have 
some access to a lot of these global forums that work on YPS and WPS. And I want to make sure that I am making use of those spaces by creating more awareness about the Kashmir conflict, for instance, the situation on the ground, and what is really needed in terms of protection, for instance, of women and young people on the ground. So for, in, for instance, in our context, uh, I think most people don't even know about YPS. It, it's almost... Um, you know, it's it's not even useful to even think about it because we don't have a peace process. We have nothing of that sort. We don't have a space for political dialogue even. We don't have space for expression and dialogue at all. Um, but talking about protection, at least of young people and women and protection, not just in terms of physical protection or uh, socioeconomic protection, but also psychological protection, digital protection, legal protection, which is going to be more and more important, you know, in uh, in the context we are in Kashmir, for instance, right now, given the scenario of uh, shrinking civic spaces. Um, so I've been talking, advocating a lot for those things. I think protection especially needs to be very holistic and needs to take into consideration all of these aspects that I just talked about. Um, and women, obviously, is the other group that, you know, I think as a woman peace builder also, uh, and work having worked with some groups like widows and half-widows in Kashmir, um, women generally, I think, are at the forefront of a lot of pain and, you know, harsh brutalities of anything and everything that happens, especially in conflict zones. Um, so I've been also uh, globally at, at international levels working, I've been working at the intersection of IPS and um, WPS. Uh, and I think it's absolutely important, firstly, to create more awareness about these things, um, to also see, you know, how do you even situate these things in the context like Kashmir? Because as I said, there are no peace processes happening in Kashmir. So how do you even talk about YPS and WPS? For instance, in order to talk about WPS, um, India first has to internally even acknowledge that there's a conflict, right? Um, but the Kashmir conflict is still um, called as a disturbed area. So how you know, the rest of it makes no sense if the basics are not even taken care of. Um, so for me, that's always been problematic. Like whenever I also speak about these things in these forums, it feels like a very alien thing to talk about because it makes no sense on the ground. Um, but at the same time, I think internationally, people can talk more about firstly, how to situate these things in places like uh, Kashmir, because I've seen, for instance, a mention of protection for young people or women in the context of Palestine, but Kashmir is almost always absent. And uh, whenever I try to raise, uh, you know, <laughs> some voice about it, or uh, I try to raise concerns about it, um, there are very, very, very few people who take it seriously. And they, I think there's still so much that needs to be done uh, for international community to really acknowledge what's happening in Kashmir and, uh, you know, what they should be doing in order um, to really support the community and in, especially in the context of IPS and WPS. And when we talk about IPS and WPS, the other problem is um, sadly a lot of it is still very um, alien language. You know, you need to really 
localize it, uh, translate it, contextualize it. Otherwise, it just sounds like it's coming from global north to global south. Uh, and people from global south, especially young people, women need to be included, not just as participants in the process, but also uh, as decision makers in the process, which is not happening. And a lot of it is, I think, um, uh, I keep saying this, but just like peace building, mental health spaces, I think a lot of YPS and WPS is still very, very colonized. I think your last point is really significant because I also feel that so many spaces are still so colonized, especially like talking about the gender lens in peace building uh, and especially talking about this for Kashmir. I think it's really important already that the work that you are doing is already bringing these voices to the fore and that's already credible work uh, that you're making people aware of these issues and that's already a step forward uh, but yeah I think going back to the last point that you said that it there these spaces are still so colonized um, you also mentioned that mental health is political and I've heard you talk about that in a few spaces as well and I was really interested in knowing how you go about uh, decolonizing and decentralizing mental health and peace building in your work and in your sphere. So I'll be honest, I think uh, these themes have become very important to me recently. You know, I think it's only been a few years. Um, I studied abroad. So, you know, I I think a lot of my own mental space was very colonized. So when I came back and I had to really unlearn a lot of things, the first thing I actually got rid of was my accent that I had picked up because I, you know, was in my high school. My high school was international. Then I was in the US, UK, uh, because I didn't want people to feel like, you know, I'm this, this somebody who's gone abroad and has fancy ideas and now is going to come and tell us what to do. Um, So I got rid of that. It took me a few months. I really wanted to make sure that people accept me as a common Kashmiri, you know, who has obviously had some privileges, who has had some international exposure and education. But I'm also the same person whose family has been affected. You know, I myself have a firsthand experience of a lot of these things, including my relatives and other people around me, my friends. But I think that takes a, it takes a bit of understanding, um, humility also to come back and realize, you know, you're not there to always teach something new. Um, I think it has really kind of humbled me in that. Uh, firstly, I realized my job should be of more of a facilitator. I'm not always there to teach something new to people. You know, it's it's the other way around. People actually know what they're doing and what they need. And they actually teach you a lot more in the process than you think you're going to teach them. So it's not about teaching. I think it's really firstly been about co-learning, co-sharing. Um, and that took a bit of time, I'll have to be honest, because I think when you come back, you know, you come back from fancy ideas of sitting in a fancy classroom abroad to a place like Kashmir, you feel like you probably know a lot and you uh, will teach everybody new things. But it's not that. I think it's just been the opposite. And I think uh, the people I've worked with, especially young children, youth and women and half widows, especially have I think really, really um, made me unlearn some of those notions about a lot of things um, and really humbled me. 
so in that process i realized you know a lot of my own mental space was colonized um a lot of things for instance about uh, mental health self care for instance you know these fancy things almost don't even exist in contexts like ours even though something like self uh, or self care can be liberating for women because as women we are so used to giving that thinking about self feels selfish uh but at the same time you know kashmir for instance is a very community oriented society uh we're uh, very interdependent so in that the the understanding of um care for instance cannot exist in a silo it has to also come uh from in relation to you know how you look at things uh in relation to other people or your community members for instance for my mother's generation a lot of their psychosocial support comes from their siblings they need to talk to their siblings on a daily basis uh, for us it is a bit different but for them it's you know quite different um so i think it to it was a lot of observation on ground um a lot of analysis and learning a lot of self transformation as well because i had to really kind of undo and not undo unlearn some of these notions about a lot of these support systems and things like that i think i'm still in that learning process but um and decolonization i think is a big big thing it doesn't happen overnight but it has to start somewhere right and i am trying my best on a daily basis to create interventions initiatives or support systems on the ground that can help that can support the community and people on the ground in a way that takes into consideration their culture their traditions um, you know other aspects of religion spirituality uh so basically contextualizing a lot of it and uh, being very mindful of where a lot of these things are coming from you know as i said in the beginning even talking about peace feels like a lot of privilege like how do you talk about peace to a woman for instance who has lost her sons uh in militancy or who were shot at in the conflict um for her just getting her sons back is probably what peace is to her or for a lot of other people surviving on a daily basis you know is their priority uh, so i think a lot of this comes with a lot of privilege um, and i have it what i have tried to do is on a daily basis because i do believe in positive peace building i feel like peace is a process it's not a product so you cannot wait um, for you know it to come to you one day i think we need to create windows of peace and calm on a daily basis and it's not easy and uh, even when you do that it's not discrediting everything else that's happening you know around you the conflict is a reality we are still living i am living in a conflict zone where for instance if i am uh, let's say talking to somebody on phone providing them emotional or psychological first aid uh let's say you know tomorrow the internet is snapped um and the communication channels are uh, banned if you speak to the same person after a month when everything is back you have to literally start from scratch so it's it's really exhausting both for both the people not just for one person so i'm talking you know from that lens it's i think everything you do everything you are in kashmir is 
it's quite difficult to even talk about because um, it looks nice. It looks fancy maybe from a distance that you're trying to do all of these things. But to be honest, I think it takes a lot of toll on you. You feel I, for instance, I'm so exhausted at this point. And I think I'm mostly in existential crisis, always trying to ask myself if what I'm doing is, you know, even contributing to anything, if it is making any sense. Um, and I think those questions need to be asked if you're especially working on the ground. It's not easy. Um, it's, as I said, nothing fancy. Um, unfortunately, that's how it is. Mental, as I said, uh, going back to your question, mental is political. And um, it's about time. You know, we recognize this, we acknowledge this, because that's the only way even policymakers are going to really think about better inclusive, a more practical policies around mental health also. If you're only going to think about it from an individualistic lens, you know, you are kind of uh, throwing uh, your, it's, it's going to take a long time for us to move <laughs> in the right direction when it comes to inclusive mental health and a lot of other rights that a lot of people, especially marginalized communities, still don't have. What stayed with me is that you said that peace is not a product that you need to achieve at the end of the day. It's it's an ongoing process and it's really difficult to have that in such a conflict zone as well and explain that to a person. So I really appreciate that. I mean, I think it's really nice that you go about it through a facilitator point of view uh, rather than teaching them something all the time. Um, and yeah, I think that the conversation has really given me an insight on all the incredible work that you do and the spheres that you work with. Um, and on that note, my final question would be um, that do you have like a story or an experience that I, that you would like to share in this case in terms of the spheres that you work with or maybe highlighting the importance of the intersection between mental health and peace building? I ask myself every day if what I'm doing is you know making any sense, if it is helping people or supporting them at all. Um, and I juggle with these questions of conflict and peace on a daily basis because on one hand, you know, you try to support the community, but the, there's, a, there's an ongoing mental health crisis, which is also a lot because of the conflict um, that is, um, you know, happening. Um, so on a daily basis, I don't want to simplify all of this, you know, and, and I think this is a problem when a lot of people look at my work or similar work, they, they simplify to an extent where it then becomes actually problematic. I just want people to understand that not, none of this is simple. It's, it's multi-layered, it's, uh, you know, multi-dimensional. And even when we're trying to support people on the ground on a daily basis, there are lots of questions we're asking ourselves every day. And that is where a lot of humility also comes from. Uh, I think it also inspires to keep unlearning because you, you know, like for instance, I have a hard time talking about resilience and healing, for instance, because how do you heal in a place where there's ongoing conflict, you know? Uh, I feel like all we do is probably put band-aids on people's wounds, uh, whether they're physical or mental or emotional. And um, especially from a colonized perspective, I think a lot of communities are expected to uh, be resilient. I hear this narrative, especially in the Kashmir context, where people also sometimes say, you know, we've seen so much, we'll get over this. Um, I know some of it comes from a place of uh, optimism and hope, which is important. But I also feel like, you know, it, it puts too much onus on the communities then where they, 
but you know they're expected to be resilient and to heal no matter what is happening to them or whatever they're forced to be um in whatever situations and conditions they're supposed to be in um so yeah i just wanted to mention that it's not simple it's quite difficult being on the ground and doing all of this uh, at the front line and being also from the community um it yeah it it breaks your heart on most days and you have to really kind of pick yourself up um on most days and kind of build yourself again and be there for other people um so in that the stories are numerous you know from half widows to children to youth who inspire me to keep going on i just i'm sharing all of this because um as i said i'm mostly in existential crisis asking myself these difficult questions but whenever i do my work for instance especially the workshops i do where you know people or people who write to me on a regular basis i have seen their lives also transforming in some ways you know it's not like um they their lives were completely problem free but i've seen um their lives transforming in a way which gives me hope which tells me okay this work is important it's helping people i think that's one of the biggest reasons why i keep going on despite so much chaos around me and on the ground um so yeah there have been multiple stories uh, one thing that always stays with me is whenever i'm in this crisis you know asking myself these troubled questions um i hear from people you know who i worked with for instance 10 years ago in a workshop and somehow something stayed with them and it helped them through something and they write to me about it i almost had you know forgotten about something for instance somebody wrote to me a few days ago um and they uh, send me a lot of prayers i think that's the most beautiful thing i look for i think it's the most beautiful thing when people remember you in their prayers and they uh, write back to you after 10 years or 9 years or 8 years telling you how you know you said this thing or you did this thing in a workshop and how it transformed their lives um so those things i think give me hope on the ground and children women especially who despite so many difficulties especially half widows who i've uh, worked a bit with and want to work more with despite so many challenges you know they keep going on they uh, choose to survive they take care of their families they do so much more you know uh, it really inspires me i think i get my strength from all of these people around me who um, i see uh, um, you know out there um, taking care of their responsibilities at home but also out there uh, you know protesting for their rights reclaiming their spaces in a place like kashmir i think survival is sometimes a most revolutionary act and in order to survive you know you need to be out there you need to be doing uh, even the usual chores i think it's important it's not just out you know you know you being out there talking about these wonderful things it's also you getting up taking care of your families uh taking care of the bare minimum so i think uh, in that um i feel very humble and it makes me hopeful when i look at people around me i think that you're really right because i mean oversimplifying your work 
I mean, that's that cannot be done because it has so many layers and so many complications. And um, honestly, I feel like despite the self-doubts, it's so really incredible and valuable because the work you're doing is impacting lives uh, directly. And I really, really admire and credit your strong willingness and confidence um, and the will to keep going. It's despite everything that's that's very credible. So thank you so much for that. And um, Keeping that in mind and everything that we discussed, I think you really summed up everything quite nicely. And this conversation has been really, really valuable to me. And I have so many takeaways already from uh, what you spoke about and things we should take away from this conversation. So thank you so, so much for being here, Ufra. And it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today and know your thoughts and your experiences. Uh, and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for, for your time in creating this space to talk about such important and valuable issues. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for being um, a very good listener. And um, I hope I did some justice to the work I've been doing on the ground. Uh, it's always very difficult for me to put all of this into words, but um, I hope uh, this at least helps some of um, the people out there who are probably looking for some inspiration or some motivation or just some um, shared connection. Definitely. I think so many people would uh, be motivated by this and um, also unlearning so many processes and decolonizing so many processes and peace building and this fears in general. I think it's really important and it's already really great that you're voicing, uh, that you're being heard and you're voicing your opinions on other global platforms. And I think that's really important as well. So thank you so much. Uh, uh, your presence and all your thoughts have been really, really valuable. Thank you for joining us today and for contributing to a better world. Thank you for listening to the Peace Corner podcast and supporting our initiative. Feel free to share this episode with people around you who you think might benefit from it. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening from.